This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. We love space, and I think all of our <laughs> listeners know it. But we are going to be talking about it in a completely different point of view today. Oh, I can't wait. What problem are we solving today? How do you live in space? How do you live in space? Well, we haven't done this one yet, Jeff, but I'm very excited to hear who our guest is. Our guest today is the excellent Dr. Mike Harrison. He is, how's this for a title, Chief Medical Officer for Axiom Space. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mike. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. We are thrilled to have you. So you get to study not just space, which I think is really cool, but also space medicine. So a little thing about me, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor a long time ago. And then I saw Sally Ride go into space and I was like, I want to be a doctor in space. Now, clearly <laughs> I did not get to do that, but you get to study all of this. So I'm curious, was that kind of your dream too as a kid? No, actually. Oh, well, there yeah. you go. No. <laughs> the cool thing about being a kid is you can want to be a whole bunch of things, and then oh. you may end up somewhere that you didn't expect to be when you, you grow up. Yes, so I'm sure true. I went through the usual, wanted to be a cowboy and a firefighter. Uh, and then there was a prolonged <laughs> period of time where I wanted to be a professional hockey player. Uh, at some okay. point in the middle, I wanted to be a journalist. And then ah. I discovered kinesiology and exercise physiology. And from there, discovered that I really enjoyed medicine and oh. follow follow that path because I, I discovered that there are ways to do medicine that get you into some pretty exciting environments. So I've worked with pilots, I've worked with scuba oh, divers, wow. I've worked with high altitude climbers. Okay. And I get to work with astronauts. So my oh. patients are not always the run of the mill. <laughs> no, I, I would say not. No, they're probably on the extreme end. That's really cool. Yeah. It, very exciting. It is. So when you started on your medical journey, and obviously that schooling is very long, did anything lead you towards space or has that just kind of happened as a progression? When I went to medical school, I knew what kind of doctor I wanted to be. I wanted to be a flight surgeon. And that's okay. what I got to do. My dad was a military helicopter pilot. I was around okay. people and things that flew my entire life. Okay. Family day always involved a helicopter ride, which is, nice. I, I think, one of the Fun. most exciting ways to fly, but it is I haven't been great. in a rocket, so ah. I'm sure there, there might be something that rivals it, but helicopters are pretty cool. And I knew that becoming a flight surgeon took a, a specific path through medical school, but I had not never considered being a flight surgeon for a space program coming from, <laughs> from Canada. Okay. Yeah. Options are limited, but I was fortunate that the path led me to, to where I'm at, and I'm having a blast with it. Well, that's, that's cool. really... That is cool. And so can you talk to us a little bit about 
how medicine is different. You said working with all of these people that go to all of these extreme places, because I know we've talked on the show before about the different pressures and the forces and the gravities that work on people. But what does that kind of do to your body? Which I know is a really big question. So break it down if you have to. (laughs) So there's an interesting relationship between the environment that you're in and your state of health. And so most patients that come into a hospital, and so I'm going to pick Florida because when I practice clinically, I'm in Florida and it's at sea level and it's a fairly warm temperature and it's pretty consistent year round. So the environment's fairly stable, but people come in sick. So their physiology, how their body is working sometimes isn't the way it's supposed to work or the way it worked 20 years ago when they were healthy, but it's not because of the environment, right? It's because of a variety of other conditions and, and factors. When we've been sending people to space or we send people scuba diving or we let somebody climb Mount Everest, they're a very healthy individual traditionally. So their physiology is normal or at the upper end of normal and probably approaching elite status. But the environment we're sending them into is in some cases hostile. It's dangerous, right? You can't breathe underwater. The higher up on (laughs) mountains you go, the thinner the air becomes and you feel like you're not getting enough oxygen. And then space, right? There's no air, there's no atmosphere. You're in a vacuum. You're going 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. You had to sit on top of a rocket to get up there. And then (laughs) to come back, you have to go from 17 and a half thousand miles an hour to a dead stop. And that's a lot of energy that you have to bleed off. And so that's been traditional, right? That it's been very healthy physiology in a very unhealthy environment. But what's exciting about right now with commercial space is that starting to change. That now regular people can start going to this unhealthy environment. And that's what I do at work is I come up with ways that people who may not have been healthy enough to be hired as a NASA astronaut may not be healthy enough to be a a fighter pilot can now go to these exciting environments and have some of these experiences. I find that really exciting. Don't you, Jeff? Of course I do. (laughs) Exactly. So that's the exciting thing for your listeners that I was just talking to a coworker about this. This is the generation that I think spaceflight may become routine and normal. That wow. instead of getting on an airplane Very the way cool. we do and not thinking about it, right? You fly to Europe for a family vacation. By the time our, our listeners have families and children of their own, they may be getting on a rocket to go to the moon for a family vacation or right. something like that. But wow. the next 40 or 50 years is going to be very, very exciting. Very wow. exciting. So again, obviously, I think some of our questions during this episode are going to be very big idea questions, and we'll trust you to sort of target the answer. But how is medicine different when you're talking about, when you kind of know the environment, okay, we are talking about space now, but you're not talking about those elite level or top level athlete type people or top level fitness, just regular people. How does the medical thinking shift when they're just regular people? That's a great question. And it becomes risk management. So the Mm, biggest thing that's different, the biggest thing that's different with space versus here is if something were to happen to me in my office, we would call 911, an ambulance would pick me up and they would take me five or 10 minutes down the road to a hospital where a nurse and a doctor and various specialties would figure out what was wrong with me and fix it, right? They would get a CT scan if they needed to. I think we can all picture that. Yeah. The space station is a really remote camping trip, for lack of a better way to describe it. <laughs> I love Great that. way to put it. You can't call 911 and have an ambulance come up and pick you up and bring you to the hospital. And there are some astronauts that are doctors, like 
Dr. Sally Ride, and there have been a couple that have flown recently. Dr. Tom Marshburn is a, an emergency medicine physician. He was on SpaceX's Crew 3 and, and just came back. So occasionally you end up with a doctor that's up there, but for the most part, you don't have a doctor that's on the space station. You don't have all the medical equipment that a big hospital has. And so you have to figure out what risk you're comfortable with, right? That somebody who has high blood pressure, diabetes is an excellent example because we have not flown somebody with diabetes to space as of yet, but it's going to happen because it's a common condition. We know a lot about it here on earth and we're getting very good at managing it. So at some point, we're going to send a patient with diabetes to space and bring them home safely. And we'll have figured out the process of doing that. There are wow. some groups that have already started doing some of the, the initial steps for that, where patients with diabetes have been in centrifuges and have gone through the launch and landing profiles of some of these rockets that are out there. They've done zero G flights, which you get in an airplane and it goes straight up. And then like a roller coaster, it then comes straight down. And in that change from straight up to straight down, if you've ever been in a car that's gone over a bump too fast or a hill, right? You get that moment where you come out of your seat against the seat. And so that's how we, we simulate zero gravity here on earth is we put somebody in an airplane and fly basically a hill. You go up real steep, real fast, and then you transition to come down real steep and real fast. And in that period in between, you get about 30 seconds of microgravity where you feel like you're floating. And there are videos out there on YouTube that your listeners can look at of people doing it. And they're doing somersaults in the air and right. all sorts of cool stuff. But we're learning how to do wilderness medicine in a very technologically advanced environment that wasn't necessarily designed to be medical. Well, exactly. So when you do this, you know, like talk about what happens to your body when you go up into space or when you're going up and down. Because I've read, you know, some of the books that I've worked on is almost every or maybe every you can tell me astronaut that goes to space for the first time gets sick, like throws up or feels motion sickness. Why does that happen? Is it because your brain's like confused or exactly? what do you think? Um, yep. It is a form of confusion. It's an illusion that occurs because we depend on the fluid in our inner ears to tell us when we're moving. So ah, even if you close your eyes and you yes. yep. turn your head really fast or spin around in a circle playing pin the tail on the donkey, or <laughs> you're asleep in the car and the car accelerates, right? you can tell because that fluid in your ear moves right. and it pushes hair in the ear that your brain interprets it, that they can figure out because this hair is moving or that hair is moving. There are three canals, right? right. To get the three axes because so, we're, we're moving in three dimensions. Your brain interprets it and knows which way you're going. You're going forwards or you're going sideways or you're going backwards right. or up or down. When you get to space, you lose some of that input because the fluid doesn't behave in microgravity the same way, but you're still getting input from your eyes. So when you turn your head, you're expecting the fluid in your ears to move the way it has on earth. And for you to get that input from your ears that matches right. what you're seeing with your eyes, okay. you know, I turned my head to the left. But your ear is not saying that you did that, but your eyes are sending a signal to your brain that, yeah, you just turned your head to the left. And so that becomes nauseating for some folks. It makes them sick to their Uh. stomach. And so then they get the the reverse. When they come back to Earth, suddenly when they turn their head, they've spent six months on the space station without that input. Oh, yeah. They've gotten used to it. Right. And then they come back and they get the reverse. They're not used to that input. And it comes back all of a sudden. And it comes back as a wave of sickness. Oh. Some some of the astronauts get dizzy and they, they don't feel very well when they, they do it. And so we, we try to avoid, we use the word provocative to describe it because 
you tilt your head too fast, you turn your head too fast, or somebody sits you up too quickly, then you're going to get that input that just triggers that I need to throw up feeling. Well, that's fun. And (laughs) they have to, they have to learn how to, how to be back on earth again. And there's a period of time where they can't drive a car because, right, if they turn their heads to look oh, behind them. Oh, yeah, because if you have to turn real fast, that would probably, yeah, yeah that's not good and, if you're puking while you're driving, probably not. And they're used to traveling <laughs> 17,500 miles an hour. And the term is velocitized. Uh, oh, yeah. So they need to get used to, right, it's 20 in this school zone. And so <laughs> they, have, they have to do a driving test uh, when they get back and, and get reconditioned. Oh my god. So it goes both ways. Going up is a challenge. And sometimes if you've been up there for a while, coming back is a challenge. That's wild. So working for one of the awesome commercial space companies right now, Axiom Space, you mentioned that you know some of the people that are getting selected aren't necessarily, you know, maybe they weren't healthy enough to be selected as an astronaut, but then they may become either a commercial astronaut or eventually just a citizen astronaut. The human body has so many systems and we all, as you were just describing, some people get sick, some people don't, some adjust to it better. How do you sort of encompass all of that with your medical team to prepare folks? Do you just prepare everybody for everything? That sounds like (laughs) a lengthy course they're going through. (laughs) So the answer is very carefully. Okay. Because we're flying to the International Space Station right now, we use the medical standards that NASA and the international partners, the other space agencies in the world have set out. Right. So if somebody doesn't meet the standard, they've got a condition that would be disqualifying to be selected as a NASA astronaut, we can apply for a waiver. Ah, And one one of the things that I don't think people truly understand is that NASA astronauts are people. They're human beings. Yes. And they get sick. They develop medical conditions. And the best analogy that I've got is that if an airplane breaks, right, you don't throw the airplane out and then buy a new one and fly that. Right. Delta or the other companies will repair the airplane and get it back in the air. And so if there's a NASA astronaut that develops a medical condition and needs to go on medicine or needs to have surgery, they will get them back to flying status in most cases because that astronaut's got training, they've got experience, they've got a skill set, there's an investment in them. And there are lessons to be learned from the process of certifying them to be fit to fly again. And so we rely on that because there have been a lot of medical conditions that have flown to space in the professional organizations in NASA and the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. And so we look at those records and see, has this condition flown before? What needed to be done to make sure that the risk was as close to zero as we could make it? Or what meds? are safe for flight, what meds aren't safe for flight, right. things like that. Yeah. And then the other thing that we look at, a big part of this is the psychological component, right? You're yes. going to be sitting on top sure. of a, a big rocket right? with three people that you may not know all that well, right? You met them when you started training. So you've probably uh-huh. been around them for the last six to 12 months. right? And you're going to go sit up in the space stations about the size of a six bedroom house. And so yeah. you're going to be in fairly tight quarters and you can't open the door and go outside. <laughs> go for a run to get away from everybody. Exactly. I'm going you're for a spacewalk for a while to get away from all of you. Right? No, We've you're not. Roommates that get on, get on our nerves. Uh, yeah. Or little brothers and little sisters, older brothers, yeah, older sisters. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have to make sure that folks get along 
with each other, or at least have the coping strategies to get along with each other, because you're also going to be away from home and away from your family and away from your loved ones. And you may not be able to call them as often as you like, or there's a lot to be said for getting a hug from a loved one. So the psychological component, how you handle stress becomes a big thing. And we look at that too. Some of the people that we are, are flying have got some pretty unique backgrounds between race car drivers and air show pilots and sky divers and scuba divers, people that have put themselves in extreme environments and things that would stress them out. And how do they handle it, right? Do they think it's fun and it's something that they enjoy or do they have a bad reaction to it? And so the people we're flying have demonstrated that they can handle being uncomfortable. They think that camping for a month is a vacation. (laughs) <laughs> right, as opposed to going in a tent with, with no running water, I'm assuming. No all pool, <laughs> no room service, no fresh laundry. Exactly. <laughs> right. And like you were just saying, with all of those other different race car drivers and fighter pilots and things like that, and even extreme athletes now, sports athletes, you have so much more data to yeah. be able to factor into the equation. You know, I'm a being space geek, Jeff. I am a giant fan of the Apollo missions. And one of the things that is not a whole lot of people know about, but is a favorite tidbit of information of mine as a heart patient is Deke Slayton, one of the original astronauts selected, never actually got to fly during any of the missions in the 1960s or the early Apollo missions in the 70s to the moon because he had a heart condition of AFib, atrial fibrillation. But by 1975, after the Apollo missions were done going to the moon and the United States and the Soviet Union decided to do a joint mission called the Apollo-Soyuz test mission, Deke Slayton was selected for that crew and he actually got to spend nine days in space and he was just fine, which means he probably could have been an astronaut the whole time. Exactly. And that's part of what the, the commercial space companies are aiming to do. And our mission statement here at Axiom is to make space accessible for everybody. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges of living in space? Because, you know, we've heard that as an astronaut, you have to exercise several hours a day. Can you kind of explain to our, I know why, but can you explain to our listeners why that's so important? Certainly. As a species, we've evolved (laughs) for the the forces of one gravity, right? That we have here on earth. It rules all, right? Exactly. You trip, you fall to the ground. <laughs> yep. Back to our conversation before we started taping about Newton, right? Newton, yeah, exactly. Newton yes. gravity and the Newtonian laws of physics. But our, our body is used to the stress that gravity presents and right. needs sure. it to be healthy, right? When we stand up, it takes a little bit of effort and we stand up. We're putting a load on our bones and on our, our muscles and right. then just staying upright. Some of our right. muscles are, are activated, even though we don't feel like they're doing anything, just to keep us from falling over, keep our back right. straight, to keep our legs straight, keep our heads looking at what we want to look at. You don't have to do some of that stuff when you're in, in zero gravity. So those muscles that keep you upright, we call them postural muscles because they maintain your posture. You're closer to being a baby in the fetus when you're in space, ah, right? You're, yeah. You're okay. floating around and you don't need to, to have that stress. A lot of the structures that we have are expensive from a a metabolic standpoint, right? Our body has to do work to repair and maintain those structures. Just like with a house, you have to replace the roof. 
you have to paint the walls every now and then you have yeah. to do things to keep everything healthy and looking nice your body does the same and so if you don't need to do that right if nobody ever looks at the roof and the roof isn't leaking you're probably not going to spend a lot of time maintaining it if you're not putting stress on the mo- bones and on the muscles your body's not going to spend a lot of time maintaining it so what we used to see was some astronauts would come back and they would have lost muscle mass and they would have had bones that weren't as strong as they were before they went to space so they do exercise because exercise is a way of putting that stress and a little extra stress on and building up tissue that you need and so the nasa astronauts right now on the international space station are doing two hours of exercise a day and that includes a, a lot of things you can't lift weights in a traditional way, but they're doing resistance training. <laughs> yes. Because, right, a 50-pound weight in space weighs the same as a 10-pound weight in space. <laughs> yeah, right? I would like that. That'd be great. Yeah, you could lift exactly. a lot, right? <laughs> like the old cartoons that I used to see of people lifting the dumbbells that had a balloon uh, yep. on either end and said 1,000 pounds. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> they run on a treadmill, but even running on the treadmill is a little different because if you run on a treadmill without gravity, what you're actually doing is jumping. And you're not going to come back down, right? You push off with your foot. You push off once and you're not coming back. You're going down the hallway. So they have a harness that actually anchors them to the treadmill with some bungee cords. So when they push off on the the treadmill, it's (laughs) like a more natural running step. And they're coming back in good shape. And we're not seeing the same degree of muscle and bone loss that we, we saw before. But it's always going to be something. As we go deeper and deeper into space for longer and longer, then exercise is going to become very, very important for our our individuals. Nutrition, vitamins, all of that plays a a role in keeping the the astronauts as healthy as possible. Can you talk about what they eat too? So everybody thinks that they eat the little ice cream pellets, but from what I've heard, no one's ever had that up there, have they? They have more real food up there. They do, and they eat fairly well. So The favorite condiment, I've been told, of astronauts, the favorite thing to put on food is hot sauce. And the reason is you end up, when you get to space, you get congested. You feel like you've got a head cold all the time because fluid in your legs is no longer being held down in your legs by gravity. Okay. ships. And so if you look at astronauts, when they do their pre-launch press conference, and then they do their first interview when they get to space, their faces look puffy. And that's why (laughs) fluid has shifted. And so... Anybody that's ever had a cold knows that food doesn't taste very good when you have a cold because a lot of taste is tied to smell. And so if you can't smell something, it doesn't taste the same. And so when you feel like you have congested sinuses and you want to taste something, making it a taste that, right, for lack of a better way, you want your food to hurt a little bit. And so they put (laughs) hot sauce on. You want hot sauce. (laughs) Yeah, and it gives them flavor. Other things are related to food that are unique, right? We have salt and pepper shakers here on Earth. Right. But you can't use a salt and pepper shaker in space because, right, when we shake out salt, (laughs) gravity pulls it down onto it goes down to our food. Yeah. When you shake salt in space, it's just a cloud of crystals that are going to float around. They'll get in your eye. They'll end up all over the place. If you've ever had salt in your eye, it's not comfortable. No. So salt and pepper is actually a liquid and it's a dropper. And so you're putting drops of salt and pepper on your your food in a liquid form. Crumbs become an issue because crumbs float everywhere. So bread isn't a thing up there. They eat a lot of tortillas because right, it's really hard to get a bunch of crumbs from a, a tortilla. It and is. you can use the tortilla for a lot of things. They make pizzas on them. They wrap hamburgers up in them. You make a, a sandwich. I mean, That's... there are things that they want that get shipped up specially. And you can find pictures of some of the astronauts when the fresh fruit arrived. They're, right, they're playing. They're just, um, I think it's Scott Kelly 
is juggling what looks like 17 grapefruits and a couple of oranges. <laughs> it looks easy to juggle in zero gravity. I dare him to try that on Earth. 17? Exactly. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so moving forward with both the exercise and the food, because obviously both of those are huge pieces of the medical puzzle. What new technologies or new information is coming for the next, say, 50 or 60 years of humans in space? That's a great question. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer it fully because <laughs> I honestly think it's going to be limited by the imagination and the creativity of people in the field. We're going to see some advances that are going to be very exciting. And the most exciting thing about space is that the goal here at Axiom and in a lot of other places is what we learn up there should help humanity down here. We're going right. to learn how to, how to do things medically by necessity for a space mission that then will have applications down here that will be able to do things smarter in a hospital or will be able to help people in the case of a natural disaster where you don't have ready access to a, a hospital, but you've learned how to, to do things with technology that we haven't done before. Ultrasound is a great example. So that's the imaging device that we have on the space station because it's small, it's portable. Right. It doesn't expose you to radiation. It doesn't require a whole lot of energy. And it's pretty useful for whatever it is you want to look at. You want to look at the eye with the ultrasound, you can. You can look at the heart. You can look at the liver and the kidneys. I can diagnose a broken bone with the ultrasound. I can look at a sprained ankle. I can use it to help me do procedures. If I'm having a hard time getting a an IV in so that I can give somebody medicine, I can use ultrasound to visualize the needle and to visualize wow. the vein and to guide it in. And the the ultrasound that's up there right now is pretty exciting. It's by a company called Butterfly. That mm. traditional ultrasound has been has worked based on crystals, and crystals are very sensitive. But when these crystals vibrate, the signal gets sent into the tissue, and then as it comes back, you get a, an image. Right. But if you hit that ultrasound against something, you can damage the crystals, and then you're not able to get the the picture. But Butterfly doesn't have crystals; they've got a chip. And so it's a little more robust. Oh. I can now, I joke with people that, right, yeah. I can use it as a reflex hammer and then still use it as an ultrasound. And <laughs> wow. I, I don't, but it's changed how we practice medicine, even on earth. And I, I don't think butterfly was designed specifically for space, but right. it's being used in space. And I used it when I rounded in the ICU during COVID, I had one of these ultrasounds in my pocket that I could plug into my phone in the patient's room to have a look at something and instead of wow. going down the hall and getting yeah. the ultrasound cart. That's like amazing. That, yeah. That's what the next 60 years are going to have. We'll have medicines that are designed specifically for individuals. We'll have, I have no idea. It's going to be fascinating <laughs> to watch. <laughs> Which is a great answer in itself. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's really cool. And, you know, there's so many different things, uh, you know, so I encourage if you want to learn more to go kind of just look at a lot of the videos for one of the books that I was working on. I had to I watched one of the astronauts take his own blood. Right. Mm -hmm. And so but here's my question. What happens to the blood? Like, do you does it get sent back so that you can test it or can they test it? on the ISS and kind of what are you looking for? Are you just making sure they're still doing okay? Or do you do it for, look at the blood for specific things? So a lot of that that you're seeing is science is being done with space station on orbit, that the blood's being drawn for a specific research protocol 
and they're bringing it back to earth. We call it a payload that oh, it'll okay. be stored and it'll be saved and it'll be brought back to earth on the next capsule. So a SpaceX dragon capsule or a Russian progress or whatever that comes back. Right. And there's a, a little bit of a time crunch, right. From when it lands to when we have to get it back to NASA. Exactly. So the way it's preserved is still good and we can get the, the data off of it, but they're, they're looking at, again, your imagination is the only limit. There are people that are looking at wow. stem cells at how our wow. immune system works in space. We're learning a lot about cancer research based off of how cancer cells behave in, in microgravity and then the treatments to go along with a lot of these conditions. That's fantastic. And so going yeah. back to my, how I started where I said, right, we're sending healthy people into an unhealthy environment. Right. We're using that as a surrogate for people here with health conditions that, right, they're not at their healthiest state, they're unhealthy, but they're in a normal environment. So we can replicate certain things by switching that around, that it's a, an unusual environment and a healthy body. We can learn how to treat people down here in a normal environment with an unhealthy condition. And That's I think fascinating. That is, and it's really awesome, I think. Very much so. And I think this conversation sort of, I think general people don't really think about when they think space, like in our introduction, they aren't thinking about how humans are not meant to live in that environment. We were made and evolved here. And the number of problems that could arise. And when you think about space history, we don't think too much about how much problem there has been with the human body and the astronauts that we're actually sending up there, the earthlings that we've mm -hmm. sent up there. And I really think that the commercial space industry has really opened up a much broader conversation for just regular people to learn about other aspects more than just, ooh, pretty rocket launch, or, oh, this was a neat landing of a Falcon 9. It has given people more things to be curious about. And I think that's fantastic. One of the, the things that you're, you're hitting on right here is I have a big objection to the term space tourists, especially for mm. the crews that, that we have. Okay. Right. right? The, the crews that, that Axiom are sending into space, they may be regular people in the sense that they weren't selected for a NASA astronaut position. Correct. But they're not going up and spending two weeks on the space station hanging out <laughs> trying to sleep in a hammock <laughs> looking for right. my ties yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. sandals on they've got ambitious research projects that they're engaged in and they're doing science and they're doing work and they're doing this some of them are doing it right. on their own time right they they bought their ticket themselves right. and right at no insignificant but, cost at the moment but hopefully yeah. that comes down <laughs> yeah so it, it's exciting that Regular people are, are getting involved in the science that's going to benefit humanity. Absolutely. All right. I have one quick question and then we have to go to the challenge. Would you go to space if you were offered I, the chance? <laughs> I have applied. I have offered. I have even gone so far as to start begging. Uh, without, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> in a heartbeat. So so that is no the ultimate helicopter ride for you, right? Oh, it's, yeah. He's got to know the difference between the two so he yeah, can prepare. That's fantastic. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that. But yes, now we're at the point in the show where we ask our guests to give our listeners a challenge. So I'm curious what your challenge will be for us, Dr. Mike. So I'm going to go with the exercise concept. Oh, okay. okay. 
So if you can't lift weights in space or you can't do a push-up in space because there's no weight from your body, how are you going to do the exercise that you need to do for two hours? What can you do to put some resistance so that your muscles are are working oh. against the force? Okay. So they get bigger, they get stronger. And when you come back to earth, you're ready to stand up and walk on your own. Oh, okay. oh, I like, I, like, I that. like that one. Makes me think of my resistance bands, maybe that I uh-huh. use. But I don't know, would those work the same in space? They have. The, okay, people, well, that's, people that's something. Resistance bands. That's something that all of you listeners can go look up and do some research on that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've really yes. learned a lot about living in space. So thank you so much for being on Solve for Kids, Dr. Mike. Thank you, Dr. Mike. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. You know, Jen, I don't think I said it at all, but I never wanted to be in the medical field or be a doctor. But when you connect that information with sending humans out to space, it becomes fascinating doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I did want to be a doctor who went to space (laughs) a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, it's so incredible how we have figured out to have humans live in space because it's not like the most hospitable place in the the universe, is it? Space is trying to kill you all the time. (laughs) Exactly. And When Dr. Mike is talking about these really serious things like radiation and health and fitness and all of that stuff, to be able to bring a challenge Mm -hmm. right back into our houses, our living rooms, and out in our neighborhoods of how would we get exercise if we were going to be in space and microgravity. I love the idea of the creativity of our listeners figuring out some exercises they think they would do if they went to space. This yep. is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And I think I'm going to try those too, because I think it's it's kind of cool to experiment and see how these yes. things work. So if you guys, if any of our listeners out there decide that you want to try these exercises out, share them with us on our social media. We're at KidsSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to check out our website, SolveForKids.com, where we will have a page for this episode, just like we do for all of them. And at the bottom, there will be more books to learn about what it's like to live in space, if you want to know more. I hope one of our listeners figures out how they're going to do push-ups in microgravity. (laughs) That would be cool. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve It It for for Kids. Kids.